We are in Romans 10 this morning, starting a new chapter. Uh, before we do that, I want to go back and I want to read a little bit of Romans 9 because uh, Romans 9 is definitely connected to Romans 10. And for us to understand Romans 10 means that we can't take it out of the context in which has already been established by Romans 9. One of the charges that you'll hear from people, church people, who do not follow the reform understanding of the book of Romans and the, and the rest of Scripture as the Reformers did and as we do today, very often they will be, bring charges against our perspective on things and they will say things like, well, why do you pray if God's preordained, foreordained everything that comes to pass? Why would you evangelize if God has already determined who's been chosen to be saved and, pa and who's been passed over in a sense? Why would you bother to do those things? Because if God has determined that someone's going to come to salvation, they will come to salvation regardless of what you do or you don't do. So the charges, one of the charges against our perspective on things is it demotivates people from being faithful to the work of God. When I was a new pastor, I had actually gone through evangelism explosion before, but I went to a special seminar and, and when I, probably the first year I was a pastor to, uh, that, was, that was for people who would would be leading evangelism in the in the church and uh, it was in a baptist church in daytona beach uh, which was really surprising to me because i knew that theologically the people in that church did not believe at all what i believe in regard to how people come to salvation but when it came time to 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 uh, adopt their evangelism strategy they they, they adopted a strategy uh, a tragedy uh, strategy that was developed by a PCA pastor. Charge is all wrong. What I'm telling you is this, is if you believe what we've been talking about here in Romans 8 and 9, it should encourage you to evangelize, not discourage you from doing it. Because you know God is in control and God will do whatever he determines he will do with what you do. This is what Paul says in Romans 9. I'm telling the truth, this is verse 1, and in Christ I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, and unceasing grief in my heart. So what Paul is telling us is this, is that when he's come to these conclusions and understandings that God has revealed to him about these matters of salvation, it's grieved his heart. For I could wish I myself were accursed. In other words, he could almost wish that he himself were not saved. 
separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God, blessed forever. So let's read a little bit in Romans 10. Just remember that. That's Paul's heart. Paul loves those people. Paul is grieving for those people. Paul loves them so much, he says, in essence, he would, have given, he would give up his own salvation if some of them would be saved as a result of it. That's how much he cares about Jews. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? A word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Before his conversion, Paul was a Pharisee amongst the Pharisees. He was the guy that stood out above everyone else as being devoted uh, to his religious beliefs, committed to it wholeheartedly, fully, with every aspect of his being. He was not only zealous, he was a zealot among the zealots. If you took a straw vote, it very well could have been that in Jerusalem he could have been noted as maybe the, the guy who was most zealous of all for Judaism. What a conversion. It is not a stretch to believe for a minute that Paul was probably the very last person on the face of the earth that anybody, anybody would have ever thought would come to faith in Jesus Christ. But look what God did. God took him. And he, he didn't, it didn't with. It didn't withdraw passion from Paul. He just redirected it. 
There's a sense in which you could say that Paul was the most zealous of believers once he came to faith in Jesus Christ. That he even excelled perhaps Peter and John. Really, it's very easy to establish the idea that Paul probably had more to do with establishing the first century New Testament church than anybody else did. Even more than Peter, even more than John, even more than the other apostles. You see, the witness of that, the evidence of that is in the New Testament. You know, out of all the New Testament books, Paul wrote a good bunch more than anybody else. I mean, if nothing else, God used Paul to spread the gospel across the Mediterranean region very greatly. And at the same time, he also used Paul as, as being one of the principal, if not the primary, author of Scripture, the New Testament Scriptures. Paul has a great love for the Jewish people, nonetheless. It's his heritage. Same thing is true for us. I'm going to put this a little bit in my own context because very often your own personal context speaks to you in a way it shouldn't, so maybe this applies more to you in ways that maybe you haven't thought about, but I was in my 30s when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Even though I was exposed to the gospel, I'm sure I heard the gospel somewhere. Let me tell you, I'm not sure I ever heard the gospel of grace before I was 30 years old. But I, I spent a good bit of time when I was a young person in church was involved in the uh, royal ambassadors at the church that we went to. At one time, my brother and I were, and, you know, Sunday school very often and, and that sort of thing. But by the time I got to high school and then into college, I pretty much gave up on all that. Uh, and what I would tell you is one of the primary reasons I did is I just saw a bunch of hypocrisy, people talking about godliness and holiness and this, that, and the other, and I didn't see a whole lot of it being lived out in the lives of the people I went to church with. I didn't see them really as being very much different than everybody else. But I was in my 30s before I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I was in my 30s before I even became serious about religion at all. And I've shared this with you before, that one of my best friends who witnessed to me and helped me get through all of that told me one day, said, you're the last person I ever thought would become a believer. And I don't know what your testimony is like, but I would imagine some of you, maybe it's very similar to that. Some of you may be very different. But when you come, become a believer, it's true for everyone, unless you happen to become a believer very early on in your life as an infant or maybe you were born into the faith. And, and there are people that, that fit into that category, but they're not most people. Most of you have come to faith sometime later in your life. You weren't born as if you were a Christian from the very beginning. There came a time when God began to woo you and to draw you to himself.
to draw you out of the darkness of the world and into the light of the gospel. See, we all have a testimony. Our testimony is just simply our explanation of, for description of what happened to bring me to where I am. And your testimony really is not all about you. It's all about God. It's all about God doing. It's not about you doing. Because he brought you to where you are. One of the things that drew me was this, as I began to understand just how dark my heart was. Because I was one of those people who would have told you all along that I was a pretty good Joe. I consider myself to be relatively moral and, you know, this, that, and the other, and, and all of that. It was only when I began to read scripture and that sort of thing that I began to realize what a dirty, rotten scoundrel, scoundrel I really was. How great a sinner I was. Most of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you went through it too. We all have people in our lives, every one of us, who are unbelieving. And let me tell you, if you don't have anybody in your life that's unbelieving, then you're not being faithful to your calling. Because you're not making opportunities for yourself to witness to other people. You've isolated yourself from the world, and that is not God's intention for any of us, that we are to be in the world. We're not to be like the world. We're not to be as of the world, but we're supposed to be in the world. Why? So we can testify to the glory and the greatness of God and share the gospel with people in word and deed. It's true for every single one of us. The crazy thing is this, is Paul, as a result of his conversion, even though he continued to love the Jews, the Jews at large hated his guts. They did everything they could to destroy Paul. He mentions in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he received 39 lashes, which was the maximum number of times that by Jewish law you could whip someone. 39 lashes, 40 minus 1. Five times. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 11:24 that at, that was at the hand of Jews. Jews did that to him. And yet he still expresses this great abiding love for his fellow countrymen. That says a lot right there. 
that even though they've treated him the way that they have, they still have a very, very special place in his heart. And he would like nothing better for absolutely every one of them to come to faith in Christ. So much so that he says he would be willing to give up his own salvation to make that possible if that were possible. We all have friends, we all have relatives, we all have casual acquaintances. We all have encounters with other people that we don't even know during the week. God has brought every one of those people into our life for a reason. And part of that reason is to testify of the greatness of the gospel and the glory of Christ. With everyone, everywhere, anytime. Sadly, I would imagine that there are people who will go to their grave without ever really telling anybody about Christ. Without ever really sitting down and having a conversation with someone else about what they believe and why they believe it. That's sad. That's very sad. Because it's got not God's intention for any one of us. We are about to be, we are to be about our Father's business. There's nothing that would have pleased the Apostle Paul any more than a mass conversion of the Jews to Christianity. How do we feel about that? How often do we even think about where the world is? Well, zeal is important. The thing about it is, is that zeal, if it's misplaced, will not accomplish anything but destruction. You'd have to say that the Pharisees, amongst even the Jewish people, were the most zealous of all, it seems. And like we said before, Paul was perhaps the most zealous of all of them. But what Paul understood was that their zeal, even though their zeal was great, it was misplaced. And misplaced zeal accomplishes no good. It only brings destruction. Years ago, uh, some of my kids were with me. I don't think Lori was with us, but we were coming back from, uh, from that direction. And, you know, we live right back over here. And so we passed by the Kingdom Hall. We live almost right behind the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. And... Or going by there, and it happened to be one of those Saturdays when they were cleaning up their property and this, that, and the other, and there were cars all over the place, you know, lined up and down. The parking lot was completely full, and they were lined up and down C-39 for a good ways in both directions. And one of my, I think it was Matthew, said to me, he said, how come we don't have so many people in our church on Sunday? Obviously, it was an opportunity for some daddy teaching. Uh, and my answer was pretty short, pretty concise, and that is this. 
Those people believe that by being there, doing what they're doing, they are winning God's favor. They are making God indebted to them to give them some benefit as a result of it. They are not there because they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. They are there because they think they're making brownie points in heaven. Legalism will motivate people, it seems, very often like nothing else will. That's what Judaism, that's what Judaism is. In essence, that's what Pharisaism in that particular type of Judaism even more. It's all about works. You've heard me say this before. Christianity is very different than absolutely all other religions. Underline all. Nothing else is like it at all. In at least two ways. One of those is that every other religion is work, self-works based. You earn your way. You make God indebted to you by simply doing what he's told you to do. That's legalism. The other thing about Christianity that makes it very distinctly different is the only religion that says this, that you can have a personal, intimate, face-to-face, loving relationship with a God who made you. So don't you dare let anybody tell you that Christianity is just another religion. It's not. It's very different than every other religion, at least those two aspects and even more than that. But sometimes, don't you have to admire the Jehovah's Witnesses for their zeal for what they believe? I mean, how many times have you gotten a knock on the door? The last few years, we used to get them all the time because we live right over there. You know, it was almost like every week somebody would come, and after a while they stopped coming. We haven't seen anybody for a long time. Lauren and I walk on the trail usually on Saturday morning, and, and the Jehovah's Witnesses have decided that's going to be a place they're going to go and do their thing. And there's usually a couple of them there. When we get there early in the morning, they get there before most people come to do their walking and, and whatever, and they sit there on the side of the, the trail. And you do it not only here, they do it in Citrus Springs and maybe some of the other places too. They do that before they go to worship. mean a sense. Haven't you ever sometimes almost admired Jehovah's Witnesses just because they seem to be really zealous for what they believe and you wonder why Christians very often don't seem to be so much? Just think about what the, what the world would be like, what the church would be like if every Christian had the same kind of passion even though it's misplaced. See, one of the problems or difficulties that we encounter is this, is knowing what we know does create a position where we can feel really comfortable. Because we know that Christ has saved us. 
We know that God has saved us, and we know that there's nothing that's going to separate us from his love. So very often we don't take as seriously the things he tells us that we're supposed to be doing. And one of those is sharing the gospel, spreading the gospel. We all have people in our lives, family, people we love a lot, and maybe our principal prayer is that they would come to faith in Christ. And our hope is that God will do for them the same things he's done for us. And notice there, that is where hope is. Because we never know what God is going to do. We don't. There were people that before you became a believer were hoping that you would become a believer. Was their hope misplaced? No. You're hoping for the salvation of other people. Is that hope misplaced? No. But here is the, 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 the seat, the foundation of that hope. Hope cannot lie in other people. Real hope, true hope, the only thing that really is hope is founded in God. That's where our hope has to be. Knowing that he can do it. He did it for me. And if he did it for me, because I know the blackness of my own heart, I know he can do it for others, and I'm hoping and I'm praying for my husband or for my wife, for my children, for my grandchildren, for my neighbor, for my brother, for my sister, for my aunt, my uncle, and all those other people. The fact that God has foreordained everything that comes to pass is what gives us ground for hope. It doesn't take it away from us. Focus in, in nine was this, was it was never God's intention to save all of Israel, and it was also his intention all along to save some people who were Gentiles. He determined that back at the very beginning. It wasn't his second plan. He didn't try to, to convert the Jews to start with, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with him, so he gave up on them and then turned to the Gentiles. That's not what happened. Scripture teaches us, is this what Paul shows us? The whole Testament teaches us this. That the church is not some newfangled idea that, that, that just God came upon eventually and then sent his son into the world to establish this organization, that this was God's intention for salvation always. Verse 12, I just want to bring this to your attention. There's something 
going on today. It's not really so much emphasized now as it was for a while, but for a while it was really up there in your face constantly and, and all of that. It was, it's a theology called dispensationalism. It's where they get the pre-trib rapture from and some other things, which we don't believe in because Scripture doesn't teach it. I'll tell you that. Scripture does not teach a pre-trib rapture. It's an example of hopeful thinking or wishful thinking. There will be a rapture. But it doesn't happen before the tribulation. It happens in the second coming of Christ. But one of the disservices, and, I, and dispensationalism actually has been some benefit to the church. I want to say that. It has actually encouraged people in ways, and it's encouraged other people to really think through certain things in a way they never had before. And there are dear brothers and sisters who are dispensationalists. just happens to be my opinion that they are misled in their understanding of things. There's a sense in which they've let their own heart do their thinking for them rather than letting the word of God speak for itself. But I believe this. Verse 12, I just want to emphasize this for a moment. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all. There is no distinction in the New Testament church between Jew and Greek. We are one body in Christ. And we're about to get into some more of this conversation in Romans. is why I'm bringing it up this morning. Because whether you realize it or not, if you're an evangelical Christian in the, in the, in the church in, in, in modern day uh, America, you have been affected by their perspective on certain things, whether you realize it or not. Because it's become such a central way of approaching Scripture in so many churches today. Let me say that again. Whether you realize it or not, you probably, to some degree, your understanding of certain things has been affected by this theological movement known as dispensationalism. One of the things that dispensationalism does is this, is it continues, it continues to make a clear distinction between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. As if they are two separate entities, two separate bodies. That's not at all what Paul just said in Romans chapter 10. It's not at all what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Understand, there are a lot of people today that put a whole lot of stock on what's going on in that little teeny tiny country called Israel on the other side of the world. Jesus is coming back. We know that. Why? Because he said he's going to. You know what, when he comes, some of those people that come with him, their spirits that come with him, some of them are going to be Jewish and some are Gentile. What I'm telling you right now is in the church in heaven. 
that they're Jews and Gentiles together there as one body. No distinction at all anymore. Period. It's not like they have sections in the heavenly throne room and the Jews are over here and the Gentiles are over there. They are united absolutely in every way. No distinction whatsoever from one another. That is how you and I should look upon the church in the world. That's how Paul looked upon it. As he just said. Maybe you're Jewish. Get over it. Maybe you're a Gentile. Get over that too. Ephesians chapter 2. You know, Paul talks about him building this body. And, and the emphasis in that whole chapter is this. Is one body together. He's talking to, to, to Gentile believers for the most part. And he's telling them. You really are a part now. It's not like you're a second-class citizen. You're part of the covenant community just as much as any Jewish believer is. There is no distinction to be made. So stop making distinctions. We can make distinctions in all kinds of ways. It's very often we look upon other people and we see certain things and we kind of put them in a category, put them in a different group or something. They look at this that way, I look at it this way, and so on and so on and so on. You know, all that does a disservice to the body of Christ. How shall they preach unless they're sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. That is from the Gospel of Isaiah. The very heart and soul of where we derive the whole concept and word evangelism. From the Old Testament. So are you praying for people for their salvation? Good. Don't stop. And if you're not, you need to. It's one of the principal jobs God has given to you. Please don't sit here today and say, I never pray for the salvation of anybody. Can you imagine what Paul's prayer list was like? I certainly didn't get through it in 10 minutes. 
You know, and you read all these epistles, and he's talking about how he's praying for the churches. He's not just praying for the church in Ephesus in a general way. He's probably praying specifically for particular people in the church in Ephesus. Paul must have spent literally hour upon hour upon hour in prayer every day. And many of those prayers were for the salvation of people. Some of them were Jews, nonetheless, no doubt. But also, some were Gentiles. So, do you have beautiful feet? Most people don't think of feet as being that all that particularly beautiful. Especially the older you get. Are you going? Bearing forth that gospel. The only gospel. Salvation. For Jews. And Gentiles. And everybody else. One and only.